Catholic Family Podcast presents Lent Around the World Daily Traditional Catholic Meditations Read by our friends from across the globe The Passion and Death of Our Lord Jesus Christ by the Most Reverend Albin Goodyear Part 10 Introduction to the Discourse From this point the language of Jesus at the Supper takes on another form. The second cloud had been dispelled. Now he was entirely free. Henceforth he could allow himself to speak of that which was uppermost in his soul. He would still be deeply moved. He would speak with a certain disregard of order which comes of deep emotion. Though, as we shall see, there was order enough in what he said. But it would be without any further hindrance. He had so much yet to say. His heart was very full. He would speak as the thoughts came uppermost. He turned again and looked upon the eleven whom long ago he had chosen for himself. He knew well what would soon happen. Not only would these men be scandalized in him, they would no longer have him with them, that they might turn to him as they had always done in their hours of distress. They would cry, Save us, we perish. And he would be not asleep, but dead. They would lose him. Their faith in him, in spite of all the warnings with which he had prepared them, would be shaken to its very depths. The prospect of that, more for the moment than all the rest, hurt him to the quick. At other times, when they had been in doubt, he had always come to the rescue, when they had not understood his parables, when their gift of miracles failed them, when they took alarm at the aggression of the scribes and Pharisees when people of Samaria offered them insult, when they themselves were foolish. But now for three days they must be left alone, and that at a time when their distress would be as it had never been before. He must at least give them a reason for his going. He must renew his assurance that all would yet be well. Before the trouble came upon them, like a mother, he would comfort and prepare them with reminders of his own fidelity, of which they could never have a doubt, with accounts of all that would come of the separation, with pictures of the joy and happiness that would be theirs when at last they met once more. Let us but join his next words with those that have been spoken before, and we shall wonder whether the most tender of mothers could show more understanding of a child in trouble. Little children, Yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and shall not find me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If not, I would have told you, because I go to prepare a place for you. And if I shall go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. But that is not the limit of the consolation and encouragement he would give to these his little children before he put them on their trial, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he cometh from God and goeth to God. So John had written of him at the beginning of this scene. In other places he writes in the same strain, giving us to understand that the simple truth is behind all else that he has to say. To that same truth Jesus now drew the attention of his own. He had taught it so often, he might now assume it. 
they had asked him whither he was going. Let them but recall what he had taught them, and they would be able to tell themselves. Hence, trying them, he continued, And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. He was interrupted. With that intimacy which ever reigned between him and them, even at the most solemn of moments, a disciple intervened. Objective, unimaginative Thomas could not understand. On the way up to Judea, but a few months ago, when all foresaw danger for them in Jerusalem and they were afraid, he had stiffened their courage with the words, Let us go and die with him. Yes, but the very sentence betrayed a weakness in Thomas. Could such words be said to express that faith and trust in Jesus, which most became his follower? Peter had believed and trusted so well that he could welcome suffering and death. And though this too was an excess, yet was it an excess of a better kind. Later, after the resurrection, we are to hear again of the limited faith of Thomas, this practical man of affairs. He had no use for riddles, and Jesus now surely was speaking in riddles. They knew whither he was going? How could they know? They knew the way? If they did not know the goal, how could they know the way? Thomas saith to him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Again, Jesus was patient. As he had been with the traitor Judas, as he had been with the self-reliant Simon Peter, so now he would be with this exacting, literal-minded, obstinate Thomas. He would not be annoyed with him. He would not rebuke him. Peter he could rebuke with advantage to Peter. Thomas must needs be treated in another way. He would give him an answer, yet in such a form that Thomas would be made to recall much that he had learnt before. Thomas had said that they knew not whither Jesus was going. Did he not know that he was going to the Father? He had said that they did not know the way. Had Jesus not told them many times that the only way to the Father was through himself? No one cometh to the Father but by me. He would sum it all up for Thomas and for all the world to ponder in the ages to come. This is not the only time that we have to thank Thomas for the answer he drew from his Lord and God. O Felix culpa, O happy fault. Jesus saith to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would without doubt have known my Father also. Then, as if again he were crushing down his disappointment, as if during that last hour nothing should be permitted to oppress him, he added for himself and for them a word of hope. And from henceforth you shall know him, and you have seen him. Close to Thomas was Philip, Philip the gentle, the meek one among them all, who in the first days had been just called as Jesus passed him on the roadside, and he had promptly followed the most easily accessible among the twelve, and therefore it would sometimes seem the second in authority. Philip, who had patience for most things and for most people, but little for questioners and critics when the very truth himself was speaking. Philip believed, as simplicity believes, unquestioning. He knew because he believed, not because he understood, and it was enough. Philip had not much use for argument. Hence this question of Thomas troubled him. It was a needless interruption, 
and that it should come from one of his own special group among the twelve added to his annoyance. He would remove this hindrance. He would encourage Jesus to proceed. With his usual desire to put matters right, he would show that they were not all like Thomas, doubting and mistrustful. Only let them see more clearly what he meant, whither he was going, and it would be enough for them all. Jesus had said that henceforth they should know the Father. He had said that they had already seen him. Philip did not doubt it. Jesus had said it, and therefore it was true. Clearly the words had a sense not easily understood. For who could see the Father and live? Only let Jesus explain to them what he meant, and all would be well. Even Thomas would be content. Philip saith to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Could Jesus have been disappointed with this simple and loving request of the simple and affectionate Philip? There was no arrogance in Philip, no overconfidence. If there was ignorance and slowness to comprehend, it was only of the kind which he shared in common with the rest. In spite of the shadow of rebuke and disappointment and the answer Philip received, there is in it more understanding than complaint. If there was complaint, the use of Philip's name alone would show it was the complaint of love that was never satisfied. Jesus saith to them, Have I been so long a time with you, and have you not known me? Philip, he that seeth me seeth the Father also. How sayest thou, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I speak not of myself, but the Father who abideth in me, he doeth the works. Believe you not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? Otherwise, believe me for the very work's sake. No, it was not complaint, at least in the sense of finding fault. It was rather a touch of sadness after a long retrospection. At the end of all this time, and all this careful training, this was all they knew of him. Expressed as it was in the Master's own words, it was only the refrain which had rung without ceasing in John's ears from the beginning of his days of contemplation. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. In these words at the outset, John had stated the thesis of his gospel, and throughout he has done little more than let the pendulum swing to and fro, upwards to a recognition of Jesus here and there, with all the bounty that has followed, downwards again, to a continuous rejection, to a lack of understanding even from those who knew him best. Meanwhile, between the two he has shown his beloved master standing, constant in himself, unbeaten by any disappointment, appealing and appealing again to the evidence of men's own beliefs, to the evidence of reason, to the objective fact of himself, which could not be denied, never slackening in his efforts because of the turning away of men, waiting on for those who would not come, giving himself to those who would, and yet even with these last, hungrily dissatisfied, bidding them come ever nearer, bidding them see in him ever more and more. In this sense, we are compelled to interpret all that Jesus said and did at this memorable supper. His gifts are to be measured at the furthest extreme of love divine, that none can doubt who has any sympathetic knowledge, not of this scene only, but of the four Gospels as a whole. 
The argument from Scripture is not an argument of words only. It is not even an argument of knowledge. It is an argument of truth and light and life. We read the discourse given by St. John. From beginning to end, it is neither more nor less than a proof of the inability of human speech to express not only the mysteries of God, but even the human heart of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. We see in saints like St. Augustine and St. Francis of Assisi, and St. Bonaventure and St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross and St. Margaret Mary, vain efforts to express what they knew and felt. In saints like St. Thomas Aquinas and St. Ignatius of Loyola, the pen laid down, refusing any further to attempt the impossible. St. John, as it were, comes between the two. He feels it is his duty to record the efforts his beloved Jesus Christ made that night to instruct his own and to reveal himself to them. But he knows that what he writes is full of mystery, not only for those who heard the words, but for all mankind. Jesus Christ loves so much that even he could not express his love in human speech. He longs so much that even he could not express his longing. So vehement was his appeal, so pathetic his regret that he was not heard, so sublime his promises, so intimate his familiarity, so complete the union with himself offered to any who would receive him, that men have stood back appalled and hesitating. They have not dared to say that he exaggerated, that he was untrue, they have wondered whether they have heard him aright, whether even the heart of Jesus Christ could love in the way his words implied. Once, on a time in Capernaum, his own disciples said of him, He has become mad. What must they have thought of him this night, when he endeavored to express and prove to them a love which no human being could ever hope to fathom?